Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unwrap, the Pick and Roll podcast sponsored by FBL Fantasy Ballers League. Adam Webster with you once again, and this time I'm joined straight off the bat by my Clutch Radio broadcast partner, Jacob Dool. Thanks for joining me again, Jacob. No problem, Adam. Always a pleasure when you invite me back. I'm waiting for the day when you decide not to, but obviously I haven't done anything too bad so far. Be when the Jack Jumpers miss the playoffs. We're, um, we're not alone, though. We're joined by guests today that I've been pretty excited about and pretty excited to talk to this individual. It's just a pleasure to be joined by a guy that played over 500 NBA games. He's a three-time NBA champion. He's a three-time Olympian, former Boomers assistant coach and one of the greatest players this country's ever produced, Luke Longley. Thanks for uh, coming on Unwrapped. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro. It always feels nice to hear that. Got to pump up your tires straight off the bat, mate. Yeah, Absolutely. But <laughs> now you're uh, you're a man that's been doing a little bit more media lately about the Noble Tour that we'll talk about a little later. But for the people that might not know, you don't choose to be in the spotlight all that much. Your interviews are you know few and fur- further between at times. What are you up to now with the Sydney Kings? What's your role? How often are you involved? And talk to us about your I guess involvement in this NBL season. Well, um, good. That's a big question. I'm very involved with the Kings. I'm I'm in the on the phone. I'm in the virtual office every day. Um, I'm in Sydney less these days. I've got both sets of parents, you know, that need help and other stuff distracting me a little bit. So I'm I'm doing the the work from home more than I was the last few years, which isn't as much fun because I like being I like getting my hands sweaty, if you like working. I like being on the court a little bit, but. Um, so it's been a quiet year for me in that regard, um, but I'm still very much involved. And we've obviously we've had a rough year, so it's actually hard, more it's, it's harder work when you're losing because obviously there's not as much joy in it. And I say to our other owner quite often that you know when you win basketball games you're handsome and smart, and when you lose basketball games you're ugly and stupid. <laughs> so been ugly and stupid a lot this year and doesn't feel good. The natives tend to get a little restless when things don't go their way. I was I had the pleasure of going to Kudos a couple of weeks ago for the Perth game, uh, mm-hmm. and you know you you start to hear a little bit of unrest. And I imagine that you guys aren't sort of immune to that. You'd probably hear a lot of the feedback and a lot of what the fan base has to say. Um, you're still in contention for the finals, right? Like you you're what fifth right now. You're only a game out of fourth. Uh, so there's with a couple of games left, you, you can still make yeah. noise this season. Yeah, we've been busy writing the um, background story for the greatest comeback of all time. <laughs> That's really what we've been doing. Um, look, you'd be surprised what I don't hear. Like, I, I don't have social media. I haven't um, for a while. And um, so, obviously, the, the greatest unrest comes from from us. So That's a sporting cliche, but no one's more disappointed in our results this year than us. Um, and, you know, I suppose in some ways it's a testament to how good we've been the last four years because – uh, our fans are a bit spoiled. Our fans are used to having having uh, to rocking up and seeing us win. So we'll get back to that again. I think we made a couple of uh, couple of mistakes this year early, and we just have never been able to quite find it yet. But there's nothing like finding it late. Yeah, and we'll we'll do you a favour, and we'll leave the the struggles of the Kings there, and we'll sit back and wait for that that greatest comeback story of all time with with bated breath. I think um, we'll take right. you back to I guess the uh, the good old days, some might call it, and. Um, your, your time with the Boomers obviously had a lot of success, had the country's best finish at a major tournament, fourth place at that stage. The Boomers of today, there's, there's a lot of NBA players there. They're all household names, but you were a bit of an outlier in being that NBA presence when you were playing. Is there a teammate or an opponent from your time playing 
sort of on the international circuit that you think with the exposure that international players get now could have really made it big in the NBA? Well, I think Phil Smythe would have been an NBA player if he generationally if he was uh, if he was playing you know, if, if if was in if he had that kind of exposure for sure. Um, I thought Vlahov and Bradkey both had the opportunity to be to play at that level. Uh, people in those days they just weren't looking at us as hard. So there's yeah, and that's and we compete as you said to start that introduction. We came fourth when we we're nineteen year olds. We we're on the team that came fourth in Seoul. Then we came fourth again in. Um, Barcelona, uh, not Barcelona, but you're in Atlanta and Sydney. So, you know, these days, starters on teams that are coming forth at the Olympics are, are getting NBA looks. And I guess that's the context in it. And I guess also now you see that the best players in the NBA are mostly all international players. I mean, the USA is going to still field a hell of a side in Paris with the guys that, that want to play. But the very tippy top of the league are mostly Europeans um, these days, which... I guess you could point that all the way back to those Olympics that you played in when the Slavic countries and, and the USSR at that point were, you know, a powerhouse as well. So it's always been there. It's just that the two worlds have kind of collided recently. Do you think that's about it? Or do you think the game sort of changed and become more European over time at the highest professional level? Oh, there's no doubt the worlds have collided. And, you know, we've got a just a sort of a, uh, a random, fantastic crop of international, unique international players at the moment. Um, I, I think that really good players end up being obvious wherever they are in the world anymore. You know, whereas for a while there, we looked at we looked at the Americans as sort of untouchable basketball gods, and that was the general consensus around the world in '88. But we learned, we learned that they're beatable. We learned that they're they're not untouchable, and. Uh, it's great. To, I mean, my obviously, I don't know everyone's favourite player, maybe, but mine certainly at the moment is Jokic, and uh, the fact that he gets it yep. done without a lot of bounce, um, you know, without a lot of speed, he's that unconventional offbeat uh, type player that's transcending all the things that people think are groovy and fashionable at the moment in the NBA. And I'm hoping that catalyzes a new, new round of of uh, interest in international players. I'm really glad you brought up Jokic because I, I had a look at your career high in scoring and it happened to be against the Bucks when you played for Chicago. You had 24, 9 and 8, which is, you know, that they're Jokic numbers these days. That's that's about his his average. Um, Scotty didn't play in that one and I know you and Scotty have a really good relationship. MJ had 44. Did you tell Scotty after the game that you were the second option from here on in? <laughs> well, everyone knew that already, mate, but, you know, I would have had a triple double, but MJ kept missing jump shots. We're trying to get <laughs> look. There were nights. I mean, even a broken clock's right twice a day. There were nights when things went went really well for me. And that was certainly not an average night. But uh, and but but the truth is, I don't remember that night either. So I don't know what really? that tells. I guess when you play eighty two games in a year, it's hard to remember the good nights, the bad nights. They all kind of blend in together, right? Like it's it's about a season and a feeling and a place that you were in your life, as opposed to individual moments. Yeah, a bit embarrassing for me, actually. I have people come up to me all the time and ask me, do you remember in game six of the play? Yeah, there's no way I can remember any of that. And part of that, so I've had a, a, um, you know, a, a busy life, and it's 30 years ago, or 25 years ago. But I recently got together with a lot of my old Chicago teammates, and it was like putting a jigsaw puzzle piece together. We're all getting to the age where we've all old enough and we've drank enough and we've been, you know, do we only remember little bits of what happened back in, in those days, but have been together as a group the other day. I think there was uh, 11 or 12 of us, MJ and Scotty didn't come and Dennis 
Dennis got drunk and missed his flight. But uh, <laughs> that was fun to try to get all those memories back and, and harvest them from the other guys. And uh, I've even remembered some of them. That was the Ring of Honor ceremony, right? There was a little bit of controversy there. Um, the, the the crowd um, gave a, a pretty disrespectful reaction. Do you think overall fans have gotten a little bit more brazen, a little bit less tactful with that sort of thing, particularly in the wake of, you know, the documentary oh. and that sort of stuff? Like, We won't get into the exact, you know, happenings unless you want to, but um, more of a comment of fan behavior. It wasn't great. And I, I think it was widely condemned by the whole basketball community, the way that the fans behaved on that night. Yeah, look, it, it was it was really interesting because I was loving the fans. First of all, the fans haven't got more brazen. I think they've probably gotten less brazen. And okay. Chicago are as brazen as they come. But yeah. everyone's a bit polite these days than they I think than they used to be. But that's just my impression. Um, but I was busy absorbing all the love from the fans, and then in the blink of an eye, when that happened and they booed Thelma, I, I was furious with them. I was it was one of the quickest emotional turnarounds. I'd whip emotional whiplash. And then I realized that obviously that Jerry had gone up on the big screen. They weren't bearing Thelma. Yeah. That image of Jerry. But Thelma was sitting we were all sitting underneath the big screen. We couldn't see that. So it felt like I was sitting right behind her. I actually reached over and, and put my hand on her shoulder and it felt like she was getting electric shocks, like she was actually physically physically shocked by it. And but only afterwards did I realise that they, you know, because obviously in that in the Netflix doc in the Last Dance, Jerry was portrayed as a villain, and and some people around the club have sort of been carrying that narrative for a while. And so the fans read that, they watch that, they they buy into that, and he wasn't a villain to me. Um, and you know, everyone's got their own story. So I was devastated for Felmer. I was disappointed for for the late Jerry as well because he did a lot of good work and didn't deserve that. Indoor sports are often played on dusty, dirty, or humidity-affected courts. Lack of grip hinders an athlete's performance. To be at your best, choose GripX. GripX is a new high-performance shoe grip spray using a special locally tested and patented formula. A couple of sprays of GripX on the soles of your shoes provides athletes with confidence via reliable stability, movement, and accuracy. Used by athletes at all levels and abilities on hardcore sports such as basketball, futsal, squash, volleyball, and badminton, GripX does not affect natural movements but supports controlled actions when surface conditions aren't great. GripX is available in five amazing scents including apple, vanilla, and orange. At just $17.95 each, make sure you're ready to take the court anytime, anywhere, thanks to GripX. Available only online at grip-x.com.au. Uh, now, taking a look at sort of the NBA as a whole uh, back when you were playing, uh, I think we can all agree that some of the best highlights in the league are when there's a mismatch, you know, a, a big start guarding a, a wing or a, or a guard. Who was the worst person, in your opinion, to get switched, switched onto on the perimeter as a centre like you? Oh, basically, mate, there's a long list, let me tell you. Um, the worst person to get switched onto in my whole career. Uh, Kevin Johnson. Kevin Johnson oh, would just poke yep. you before you even knew what, like, it was so fa- he was so fast off the catch and off the bounce that really all you could do is when you saw the ball going towards him, you chose a side and tried to funnel him to a side. And he'd still go the other way. Like, he was scary, um, scary fast. But there was a lot of guys like that for me. I mean, this may surprise you guys, but I wasn't the quickest bloke getting around. So uh, I know, I know. Don't tell anyone you'll ruin my speedy reputation. Mad hops, though. Mm. Mad rise, even. Yep. Um, When you saw... 
uh, AI crossover MJ, just talking about being stuck on an island. When you see someone like that sort of beat MJ or Scotty one-on-one, two great defenders, do you make a point of like, no, no, staying home on this. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to make a business decision and, uh, and be right back at the basket where I belong. Yeah, early in my career, there were no business decisions. As I got older and smarter, I made a few along the way. But there's plenty of pictures of me getting dunked on by being there a little bit too late when I didn't, didn't really need to be there. Um, but, yeah, when it came to guards, I'd just, you know, gap them and try to hope for the best. And is it safe to say that in practice being switched on to Michael wouldn't have been all that much fun either, as much for, you know, how hard he notoriously goes in practice as as any sort of skill or agility or, or is there a bit more fun to it when it's, when it's in a practice setting like that? Um, well, I suppose it's, it's, it's um, there's no jeopardy. You're only practicing. So you're not doing it in front of 20,000 people or a national audience. Um, and you're not doing it to try to win a game and earn your money, earn your pay packet. That sort of vibe isn't there, but um, for MJ, MJ doesn't know that he practices just as hard at practice as he does in the games. And so, yeah, he's coming at you full steam, no doubt about that. And, I mean, one of the things with practice is there aren't necessarily whistles. And the whistles, if there are, if the coaches are blowing them, they might be blowing them to create a, a situation or a or a lopsided effect. So, you know, it, it is a little bit different at practice. You you can't you can't um, manage the referees. Someone like Michael couldn't play the, play the whistle like he would in the game. So, you know, it, it can be a bit more physical, actually, in practice. Uh, I want to get into another career high just because of the jersey you can see behind me. Uh, you had 19 rebounds against Hakeem Olajuwon uh, back when you played for the Wolves. Hakeem had a really quiet game. He had 34 points, 10 rebounds, and eight blocks. Um, tell us about going up against Hakeem. Thanks for that in, man. You could have left that bit out. <laughs> Jacob actually made me. He he sent me a message before, and he's like, you got to remember to mention Hakeem's stat line too in this. So I'm not not taking the game the, the blame for this he had a five by five which you know you, you can't do much about that but I want to I want to ask about going up against one of the greatest of all time Hakeem Olajuwon what made him so hard to defend there's so much made of the dream shake there's so much made of his footwork but is that just oversimplifying it do you think that that's sort of revisionist history saying well, it was all footwork just because there's a couple of highlights um he was slippery, man. I mean, there's lots of ways to be slippery, and he wasn't slippery off the bounce. He was slippery. He would get you. He, it is his footwork, but it's more than that. When you when you're trying to engage a defender and you're not off the bounce, you're trying to establish a rhythm and and dom and dictate their rhythm, right? So your footwork and the ball is how you get them moving. And he just you found yourself just slipping into his into his rhythm so easily because he he was so good at baiting you into this the rhythm that he had when he was playing and suddenly he was off beat and, and he was a jazz musician, you know, and you were just left, left holding your drumsticks, so to speak. He, um, it wasn't his footwork, but it was more to do with, he would sort of, I don't know, he'd get you moving and lull you in a way. And then he had such a great change of pace and he played so low to the ground that it was hard to push him off his base. And then he's so explosive. You could finish at the rim. So going from really low to, to really explosive at the rim, uh, it's hard and hard to defend without fouling. Um, not an overtly aggressive guy either. You kind of didn't really feel like beating him up like Alonzo Mourning or someone like that. Um, but, I mean, he was really at his prime only in my first two years of my career. So I was trying to figure out how to defend at that stage. I mean, Dave Robinson gave me fits as well, but in a, 
more of a straight line sort of a problem than a Keem's rhythmical side-to-side um, post-action. Yeah, and he was, you know, as stretchy as they come from a five-man back in the day. He used to, you know, shoot the long two-ball, which not many of your contemporaries did. You certainly w- weren't encouraged to sort of step out uh, outside of the box. But well, hang on. I was, how did that I was, change? Once in Chicago, I, was, I had to step out of the box. I had to stretch to 17-footer. 17, 17 17-footer. Foot. I want to ask you about Patrick Ewing as well. I mean, you have plenty of playoff series um, against the Knicks. Um, he was more sort of strength and uh, and power. Um, how did that match up differ? Yeah, so really, I made my money when my bread was buttered. Was I like to say wrestling monsters? You know, I yep. I, I, um, I don't look. Uh, you know, I'm not. Um, I don't look as as strong as I probably am. Like I'm, I was, my one of my best skills was my strength and able to manage the bodies of the big guys. And so Pat's game kind of played into that a little bit and I could and I'm now you're going to trot out patch you know but Pat, Pat had this and that and I, and I look like a goose but that's all right that's part of the job um so Pat Shaq uh Rick Smith those guys were, were easier for me to handle because it was a battle of strength even uh rather than Elijah one and Robinson and those guys where I was you know and even dealing with Sean Camp and guys like that or Carl Malone who I had to guard at times uh, and other powerful, just you know, that speed game's harder for me to match. I just there's nothing, no mate, there's no way for me to sugarcoat it that I'm not great laterally, um, but I can wrestle you. And Smith was yet again a different animal because he was more slightly built, right? But he had the height. He was taller than you, seven foot four. You didn't probably come up against many guys that had you for height, like Sean Bradley and and Rick Smith. So it it was a different, I guess, challenge again for a guy that could potentially shoot over you. Yeah, but Rick was strong, man. Rick was yeah. a strong back for, um, I mean, Elijah one fits into that mold. Rick was strong, deceptively strong. So it really was about catching him early and trying to not let him get the sp- two spots where he was effective. And that's where the strength plays into into it, I suppose. Whereas, you know, Elijah one, those guys could, you could wedge him off the block and they'd catch it at 17 feet and he still gets you into his rhythm with his shot fake or his shot and off he goes. He's still in his, you know, he's still working in his comfort zone. Now, I feel like Smith's, Olajuwon, Ewing, all household names, all big names, all people we still talk about. But Adam and I spoke about this beforehand. We both agree we're big fans of obscure basketball players. So we've heard you be asked about yourself, Michael, Scotty, Dennis. Shaq. So many Shaq questions that you've answered. So many Shaq questions always. So who's, who's the best player that you could think of from your time in the NBA that doesn't get talked about enough or that doesn't get the love that they should? Um, I was always a big Jamal Mashburn fan. I thought Mashburn was pretty big tough. Hat. He could do a lot of stuff, that that guy. Um, I would have liked time to prepare for these, Jacob. You're just bringing these on me. I'm just going to go with Mashburn and, and stick it at that. Hey, that's, that's well, a do good answer as we could have hoped for with preparation. Did you want more obscure than that? I'll, I'm going to throw one at you who was surprisingly Please hard. Do. Marty Conlon. <laughs> that, I mean, that's that might be even too obscure for me as a fan of obscure players. So I love that. That's what I like to hear. Oh, go for Marty Conlon had had the had the hardest game to figure out because it was unconventional to say the least, and everything everything was just hard to. Yeah. Anyway, I won't. I don't want to bag Marty Conlon. Marty, there's an obscure one for you. Um, who else? Marty Conlon's nickname on Basketball Reference is Celtic Killer. 
Perfect. That is. I don't know if he's a Celtic killer or if he's the Celtic killer. Which one just, is it? Uh, it doesn't have a predisposition. Just Celtic killer. He might be part of a troop. You never know. <laughs> Go watch yourself some highlights. You'll find yourself going for ball fakes in your sleep. Actually, I've I've got one more. There are there is this internet trope that you would not be aware of because you don't have social media, but obscure players getting their own highlight tapes under quite, you know, aggressive hip hop music. So if you had one of those made up for yourself, what would you want the soundtrack to be? Don't I have any? Okay. Uh, um, you, you may out there. They are, there are so many out there that you just get really? recommended a random one. I saw a oh, I I, I forget who it was. Uh, Rafael Arujo or something had had his own tape. Um, but what would your soundtrack be, mate? Oh, does it have to? But let me think. I'm going to go with a cruel sea song. Airplanes fly too high. Nice. I think that's cool. But I, it's got to be something cruel sea. I, I love me. Tex Perkins highlight. Okay. Legendary Australian rocker. (laughs) But probably doesn't make good highlight real music, does it? What about some Hilltop Hoods or something like that? Maybe that's. Yeah, we'll go with that. Let's, can someone out there make the tape, please? Let's do it. (laughs) I'm not as creative as everyone else out there. Someone else made the tape. I have to make Luke Longley highlight tapes because I was more of a meat and potatoes guy than a highlight guy, but they might be able to find something. Yeah, the uh, the mixtape I was thinking of was the Grievous Vasquez mixtape. That was the one that I saw recently. Very, very good. Very good. But that that's a great. I love. That's a great name. I mean, yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna get a highlight reel, it might as well have a cool name like that. Grievous bodily harm himself. <laughs> Unwrapped is presented by FBL Fantasy Ballers League, an Australian-owned and operated baller lifestyle brand that aims to provide you with the freshest lifestyle apparel and courtwear. FBL's products emphasize a perfect mix of fashion, function, and comfort and make a bold statement in their distinctive white, black, and gold colors. From hoodies, jackets, t-shirts, and socks to their two signature shoes, the Edge in white and gold and the Threat in black and gold. Be bold with gold. Check out the FBL collection at fblsport.com today. Well, I think we've we've got the rest of our night sorted. We've got some names to go on and watch some, some highlights for now, but Right now, looking looking forward a bit to sort of the current crop of basketball stars in Australia, uh, it, it felt like the the big men stocks of the boomers have been a real talking point lately, particularly after Jock Landau went down injured before the World Cup. How do you see the strength of the position currently in Australian basketball and in the boomers? Because there are quite a few players making waves sort of in the NBA and the NBL. How, how do you view the group that you've got at the moment at the centre position? Yeah, well, put it this way: What is a big man these days? Well, it's it's so fluid, isn't it? It's basically yeah. over six eight. Well, I feel like Xavier Cooks is in the big man conversation. Yeah, six, I mean, seven. Yep, true. It is so hard. So you know, obviously, being from my era, when you say big man, I'm thinking seven footers or you know maybe little midget big man at six foot ten, but that's just not a thing anymore. You know, um, obviously, the shot blockers, there's rim protectors. Um, you know, Dirk Reith has been putting his hand up, as you guys would know better than I would, and, and have playing some good basketball at times. And, you know, he's that stretch guy that can go get a few rebounds. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as far as the overall stocks, it's, you know, it's probably uh, it's hard work at the moment. And we've got a couple of guys in the Kings who are going to put their hands up to go over and have, you know, um, Gorgian gets to have a look at them next time around. 
Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you to be honest. Where they're going to go with that? Who do you like from the Kings that's going to represent Australia in the Notches for Future? We had Alex Tui on this show a few weeks ago, who was a really impressive young man and has a bright future ahead of him. I imagine he's, you know, in line. Yeah, I think he and Galloway both are sort of um, guys that the Boomers would be very aware of. I mean, I think our two, I think Bolden and, and uh, Bolden in particular and um, Geordie Hunter are both sort of on that fringe of being considered. Geordie has games where he looks like he should have been a Boomer for the last couple of campaigns and then he has games where, where you're not sure. But, um, you know, Jonah provides that shot making and that length and he just needs to learn to keep his hands out of the cookie jar a little bit. Um but yeah, those are the guys for sure. And probably an extension of that question, just crystal balling for a sec in say four or five years time, by the time we get to LA 2028, aside from the, you know, the stock standard Josh Giddy answer, um, who do you think is going to be the best or most important boomer heading into, you know, the next Olympics? Is there a guy that's either a next star college player that you love coming through uh, and do you think it's, you know, at 16, 17 years of age that Rocco at age 20, 21 is going to be in a position to be able to make waves in the Olympics? Or is that, you know, a Brisbane proposition in 2032? Like, who's who's the next sort of leaders of this team? Because Joe Ingalls probably won't be on the LA team. Paddy Mills probably won't be on the LA team. We're seeing a changing of the guard, and that's, you know, part of why there's probably a, a little step back with the last World Cup, but we're kind of halfway between errors. We are. So the leaders of the next couple of campaigns will be the guys you know. I, I feel like Josh Green's still got a lot of growth in him. Yeah. I'm a the way he goes about it at both ends of the floor. Um, you know, Dyson Daniels is making a case for being a consistent presence. I think Jock Landale will be the veteran leader for the next couple of campaigns. In terms of trying to annoy the guy or, you know, trying to pick a guy that's coming through at the 17s or 18s, there's plenty of names out there, but I I'm not ready to. I'm not ready to run one up the flagpole today. But I do think. Um, I do think that uh, feels like our talent stock is broad and wide rather than pointy at the moment. I'm really interested because there's a couple of different pathways for Australian big men right now. You've got Xavier Cooks now in Japan. You've got Jock Landale playing for Houston but not getting minutes. What's a better preparation for an international tournament? Is it always minutes over everything, or is it? being part of, you know, the, the best league in the world and not necessarily getting that much burn? What's a, you know, a, an easier or better transition to a major international tournament? Yeah, that's been a topical question, hasn't it? I've, I've yeah. heard people, uh, I know Gorgian's talked about that and I know that the German national coach has made a big deal about that being a big part of the success that they had um, picking guys that played a lot. Um, but obviously there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, where the rubber meets the road is if you've got a very talented guy sitting on the bench and a not so talented guy playing, are you really going to pick a not so talented guy that's playing because of form? I mean, I think that's a, that's a brave move for a coach to make. Um, I mean, it's different if they're sort of old at the end of their careers, but if, if they're sort of both in the prime of their careers, I think that's an incredibly courageous move to make. Um, heading into an international campaign. Uh, I guess one of the factors, thinking out loud, is that it would depend on your run-up. If you've got time for guys to play themselves in a bit of form, but if you've got four weeks and you've got to put in offence, then probably being, being, being playing and being around it would be a big thing. But I'm not leaving Jock Landau at home, I know that. 
yeah, we saw what happened when he was obviously injured in Japan. Do, do you put that performance at the World Cup just down to the dramatic shift in starting lineup and in a, a key veteran player at the very last minute? Um, or do you think there's more to it than that? Is it a really simple fix that, you know, if everyone's fit, everyone's healthy, um, then, it, you know, it's the boomers that you would expect in an international tournament rather than the boomers that played in Japan? Oh man, um, basketball is such a ga- such a game of small things, you know. And there's so many small things lined up against the Boomers in that campaign. I felt for them, and obviously injuries was part of it, and age is part of it, and a bunch of other things that were just hard for them. I don't think they're very far away from being back to the Boomers that we know and finding that identity again. Um, that's a really weak answer to a very good question, but. <laughs> Feel like I'm dancing around the boomers thing. That's you know to be candid, it's a really, really. Um, I find my emotional response to anything boomers. I go from sitting here comfortable at a three to straight away I'm at an eight and I'm agitated. Like that, it's a strange. Uh, it's an incredibly. It's a, it's it's powerful for me, and I get I get uh, I get I get uh, funky about it because I care about it so much. Yeah, you're not alone. I, I think. You know, growing up, I, I'm a big footy fan. Like you were a, previously a number one ticket holder for Fremantle, I read. But the Boomers always felt to me like the the most important team that I was rooting for on a, a you know inconsistent basis. So there's so much riding on every single Boomers game because if you lose, you're basically stuffed for that entire tournament. So there's there's so little margin for error as opposed to a NBL season of 34 regular season games or an NBA season of 82 regular season games, you can have one off night and that's okay. You can have five off nights and that's okay. For the Boomers, they can afford to have maybe one off night um, and still make a knockout stage and then they can't make another mistake again. So there's such high stakes, which is probably why there's there's so much, you know, tension attached to it, I would say, because every decision means more. The skeleton's in my closet there because we always seem to have the off night in the medal rounds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or in the placing rounds in the semi-final where you're going to try to get into that gold medal game. and It's a version of PTSD, both from playing and coaching, being so close for so long. Um, and as you say, and you said it, you said it accurately, there's, everything's point-loaded on, on so few possessions, all the expectations of the country, of yourselves, of all the preparation, you know, the funding going forward for the program, all that stuff comes down to so few games and so few minutes that it's, it's a real pressure cooker environment and you just need a couple of things to be jangly with your squad or a couple of guys to get injured or, you know, whatever the factors are, which I'm not going to try to um, go into what the boomers factors are because it's not my business. But uh, I just, they didn't look right at the last campaign, but they were close. And I, I, I really believe in Gorgian and the staff. I think he's got great staff there. They'll find a way to make that group work whoever's there. And we've, we've spoken about, the boomers falling just short at that tournament, but and, and you sort of mentioned, oh, maybe I'm letting them off easy, but it's not like they were the only team that fell short there. You had France, the US, Canada, all teams that on paper were talented to go a long way, but fell short in sort of the pressure cooker of, as we say, you know, single elimination or or tournament play. That that sort of tournament environment plus the added emotion of of representing your country, it must be uh, a really challenging environment to play in, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's wildly challenging. And I think one of the things that made us uh, good at times is that 
fairly small talent pool. So the same guys played together for a long time, developed bonds, developed a playing style. Uh, now, obviously, there's a lot of turnover and the preparation times are, are, are even less than they used to be. Um, you're not allowed to have three a days anymore like we did in the 80s. Uh, in preparation, so yeah, it is. It's a and I never had a be you know, hand up. I never had a great Olympic campaign as a player. They were always I found them incredibly difficult. And transition from the NBA to fever is even complicated as you, you get used to the officiating and the way it's all all goes down. Um, but I will say that some of the most joyful coaching moments I ever had was with the Boomers and even the you know the the Boomers qualifying for the World Cup and Cup and going playing in sort of. Um, you know, random Kazakhstan and and all kinds of strange places like that. And that that was a fantastic Boomers environment. I loved that. Yeah, you guys got me on the hop with the Boomers thing. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, can you tell? I had a question here that I, I I don't think is you know really Boomers related. More sort of about your experience, as you mentioned there, as a coach generally and. Um, you've sort of spoken before about the mentors that you had in your playing career, like Kevin McHale, Phil Jackson, who played a big role. Uh, how have you enjoyed being that mentor yourself to, you know, players in the boomers like Aaron Baines and then to guys like Geordie Hunter with the Kings? What's it been like being on the other side of that and and being that mentor for younger players coming through? There's been nothing more fun um, in basketball for me since I played than that. And, you know, I've had, I've had, I've been lucky enough to to be, and I don't position myself as a mentor, but I, I hear what you're saying, and so, um, yeah, I mean the 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 joy I got from watching Baines as an example play and Geordie play, and there's you know there's plenty of others, um, and knowing that you can help and have an influence and um, do the things that other people did for me, yeah, it's it's the best part of the whole gig as far as I'm concerned, absolutely, the the, the that's the icing on the cake if you like. Let's talk about the NBL briefly for a second. There's what I would term to be a really important moment coming up for the league, and that is the next TV deal. Um, they've been on, yeah. I guess, the secondary uh, free-to-air channel on a Sunday afternoon for a little while now. How important do you think is it to try and get into prime time and into people's homes, the the wider Australian homes? Do you think that that's the next step that the league logically needs to take to kind of take off? We've seen... NBA popularity has exploded. NBL attendance has exploded. Do you think that the the final step of crossing the next level of mainstream is getting more eyeballs on the TV product in prime time outside of, you know, the pay television channels? Or alternatively, do you think it's just line and length? Just keep doing what you're doing because we're growing it year on year. No, I think it's a massive step. I think getting into people's living rooms every night, or not every night, but um, free to air is, we'll, we'll, we'll shift it for us. Um, It'll shift the resourcing too, which means we can keep producing a better product, and then it's line and length after that again, with more resources, and we can, you know, we can afford to pay the players better, develop the players more, get better imports. It, it compounds, and we're already doing that with what we've got, and certainly the the deals we've got have helped a lot. Um, but a, a free to air TV deal would be a game changer for us, no doubt. Huge. Um, I want to ask a couple of questions about you, and then get to the tour to to close us out. Something I was watching your Australian story the other day and something that you said resonated with me in that you came from a really creative environment in Fremantle. And I noticed in the documentary, two names popped up that I wouldn't expect to be a part of a Luke Longley documentary. One is Ben Elton, your brother-in-law. And the other one is Tim Winton, whose um, book Cloud Street I studied in grade 11. Um, 
And <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about um, what you gravitate more to. Do you gravitate more toward basketballers or creatives? And are there many that kind of sit in both of those spaces that you've been able to gravitate to basketball players that have creative endeavors? We've seen Isaac Humphreys, obviously, um, flex his creative muscle over the last couple of years in releasing music and that sort of stuff. I'm definitely attracted to creative people. I'm married to, to a musician uh, and, yep. and a, 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 she does um, food television. And, yeah, she's a creative. I'm attracted to creative people and I'm attracted to sports people. That's not a one or the other. Um, occasionally, um, I, I believe that the, the, the sport talent, musical talent, very, very rarely coexist. Um, and, and if you can name some really good examples, I'll be impressed. But occasionally there are people like Geordie Hunter is a good example. Geordie's got an incredibly creative brain and, um, and a lateral and um, unusual way of thinking. And so that attracts me. And that's, that's um, you know, I do tend to gravitate towards those sorts of people for sure. Um, probably my dad's fault when I was young. He said, no, whatever you do, make sure you, all your friends aren't basketballs because you'll become one dimensional. I took him very literally and I think when I was you know, in college, I, I mostly all my friends were outside of the basketball program. And then when I was in the NBA, I was very interested in people outside of basketball. And I guess it gives balance and you know, kept me kept me interested in other things. Um, and yet here I am every day working in sport and, and really enjoying the people in sport and what sport brings. So, um, yeah, bit of everything. A bag, mixed bag, a bag of mixed lollies, if you like. And speaking of uh, uh, a mix, you've got a mix of personalities coming to the No Bull Tour uh, in Hobart, in <laughs> Melbourne, in Sydney. It's yourself, yeah. Scotty Pippen. It's Horace Grant as well. Um, Horace hasn't been someone that we've seen a, a lot in Australia. I'm guessing he's got heaps of stories about Chicago. He'd have a lot of stories about Orlando, about early Shaq. Um, what are you anticipating out of Horace in particular, we've seen a lot of Scotty on TV. We've, we've obviously spoken to you at length today. We thank you so much for that. But what can we expect from Horace? So Horace is a lighthearted, fun-loving, um, open book guy. He's, he's, just, he's, he's lovely to be around and he does have a good memory for stories. But one of the other things that uh, Horace is going to bring to this tour is I think he's Scotty's best mate. So he will bring – he will help – mind Scotty he'll help bring Scotty along as well like those two together have got a lot of a lot of friends I mean even more so than my friendship with Scotty Horace and him have been tight for years so I think that'll be great to, to, to sort of catalyze discussion with Scotty um yeah I think that's Horace is Horace is just fun like he's just a light-hearted guy and um I'm hoping I'm looking forward to hearing his stories because we haven't scripted any of this this is going to be off the cuff to a certain extent uh, there are there is some scripting but it hasn't been done by Horace put it that way um so or Scotty uh, you know you know who we've got doing the interview has it been announced who's going to be doing the uh interviewing and and, and sort of hosting us Shane Jacobson the uh oh. the well-known yeah. plumber I think it's going to be an interesting mix of characters I mean I think Shane's going to bring a He's going to help make it accessible to the Australian crowd, and he's, um, he's I think his sense of humour will penetrate well with Scotty and Horace and get him moving. And I know it will me because he he makes me he he, he um, makes me laugh whenever I even looking at him is funny. Well, the Noble Tour is coming to Hobart on Friday the twenty third of February, Melbourne on Saturday the twenty fourth of February, and Sydney on Tuesday the twenty seventh of February. Luke Longley, we hope this is not the last chat you have with us on Unwrap. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being so candid and uh, look forward to chatting, chatting to you next time. 
you guys know I'm a big supporter of what you do, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, anytime you want me, I'm here. Thank you for having me.